0: Today on BASIC, Weird Al Yankovic.
1: Before Eat It, I mean, a few people knew who I was, but I was very much a a cult figure. You might have known me from The Doctor of Mano Show. My first two videos didn't get a ton of airplay on MTV. But Eat It, man, I mean... You, you talk about overnight fame. I remember having to, I, I, I think I recorded Beat It off of MTV on a VHS tape and then took Polaroids off the TV screen for reference, which we had on set. So, <laughs> so very old school. Yeah. But that that's how we did it. And we, we try to match it as closely as possible. Again, you know, obviously very quick shoot. We recreated it as closely as, as we could. And Man, that was the best $40,000 I ever spent in my life. That it, that video just changed my life. Hey,
2: everyone, and welcome to BASIC, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and I love Rocky Road.
0: And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And I've churned butter once or twice, living in an Amish paradise. <laughs>
2: Our guest today is maybe not what you would call a true cable TV star, but it was the advent of cable and, in particular, MTV and music videos that really propelled him to the forefront of popular culture.
0: That is absolutely right. Weird Al Yankovic is a true original and an American treasure. While his song parodies first brought him fame and fortune, he's also an accomplished musician, a comic writer, a director, and he still tours to packed houses of all ages around the globe. And he also recently wrote and produced his delightful, funny, and clever biopic parody, Weird, the Al Yankovic story for Roku, which Doug and I are both very big fans of.
2: And you can still see it there on Roku, so check it out. His enduring popularity, especially among our staff here at Basic, makes him one of the most anticipated guests we've ever had. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with the one and only Weird Al.
0: And don't forget to keep listening to the end when Doug and I will discuss all the weirdness and possibly become parodies of ourselves. Well, Weird Al Yankovic, we are so honored to welcome you to this episode of BASIC. We're thrilled that you're here. Me too. (laughs) And we want to start by asking you the same question that we ask of all of our guests, which is, do you remember when you first got or saw BASIC cable?
1: Oh, gosh. It would have been sometime after uh, MTV debuted. That was 81 and I'm going to say maybe circa 1982, maybe 83. And I was living in a $300 a month apartment in Hollywood with a Murphy bed that folded out from the wall. Just, but my one luxury was I got cable TV because I really wanted to have MTV and watch it 24 hours a day. Uh, and I remember shortly after I got cable, MTV started their whole, you know, watch us in stereo promotion, like you know, what, you know, MTV in stereo, and it was such an alien concept to to, to watch. Television and stereo, but I hooked up my my um, uh, uh, TV speakers to the, uh, the television, and it changed my life. My my world <laughs> changed on that day.
0: Do you remember any of the videos you saw at first?
1: Oh gosh, I mean whatever was popular and. The you know nineteen eighty two eighty three like men without hats and uh, MTV was playing a lot of Devo back then mm-hmm. and just, it was the very early days of MTV so not everybody was making music videos it wasn't yeah. until like MTV like really caught on that it was like required to have a, a music video for your for your single
0: right.
2: Yeah, that was the secret to MTV in the old days, you know, for the bands anyway. They didn't have a lot of videos, and the ones that did get
1: played were, you know, got to be, got, got real big real quick. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was like, you know, Rod Stewart and Diva were making videos for like the Midnight Special in the 70s. <laughs> so they had this backlog of right. videos. So they were in like hot rotation back in the early days ario Speedway. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so Al,
2: you you had another life-changing event much earlier in your life and and of course, by the way, we all saw the movie and we love it. It's on Roku, folks. We'll get, we'll get to we'll get to that later. But uh, and there's a big part of uh, at least the early part of the movie is, you know, you started playing the accordion at a very young age. So what was it about the accordion, which is not like, you know, the first thing you think about probably when you're a y- young kid, most kids, I think, think about drums or guitar. What was it about the accordion that uh, so entranced you?
1: Well, I, I have to say, uh, uh, full disclosure, I, I'm pretty sure I was not begging my parents for accordion lessons. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I was like six years old, my parents made the decision that I should take take the lessons. And it is, it, I, the, the story in the movie uh, we took some liberties with it, but th- there there are some true nuggets in there, and and one is that uh, a guy actually uh, came around to our house, like a door to door salesman, offering music lessons, and the the two instruments he, were, he was offering were uh, accordion lessons and guitar lessons, and my parents had the foresight to realize that uh, accordion music was going to take over Western civilization, <laughs> so they they made the oppression decision to to give me accordion lessons, which you know. Uh, you know, they they figured they wanted me to be really popular in high school and uh, the life of every party. So, yeah, they, they made that decision on my behalf.
2: Well, you know, small cable TV. Fun fact was, you know, one of the first things HBO ever televised, I believe, was a polka concert from Pennsylvania. Is that Pennsylvania. true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wow. maybe your
0: parents knew something.
2: Maybe you saw that, Al. Who knows? I, no, I didn't have HBO back then. <laughs> ah, <laughs> nobody did, I don't think, actually. But.
0: I'm just curious, though, because I've never attempted to play the accordion, but it seems to me like it would be a hard instrument to learn. Did you find it to be?
1: I I guess, you know, I, I learned, like I said, when I was very, very young, and when you're young... The synapses in your brain are are connecting more rapidly, and it's easier to learn anything—languages, music, anything. It's a good age to learn things. But I figured that accordion was a hard instrument to learn. When I tried to uh, teach Daniel Radcliffe how to play the accordion, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I gave him some private lessons, and he did very well. He was very committed. He didn't want to look like he was faking it. But you know, it, it reminded me that yeah, it's kind of a difficult inter- instrument because the right hand you're playing like a piano keyboard. And the left hand, you're playing a series of, of, of buttons. And then you have to also remember to push the bellows in and out. And you may or may not be singing at the same time. So it's like a little, you know, patting your head and rubbing your belly kind of thing.
0: Right. And it's heavy, right? A little bit?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I uh, honestly, I play with a child size or the sexist term lady size accordion uh, on stage <laughs> because, you know, it is some of them, you know, are like you're carrying a house on your chest. Right. But, uh, you know, and I, I run around stage and jump around a lot. So I, I tend to wear a smaller size accordion. But yeah, it, it is. A, it does wear on you after a while.
2: So the Dr. Demento, the legendary
1: Dr. Demento radio show was a
2: huge influence on you. He gave you your first break, a little bit of a mentor, I I think, as well. So, two, a two-prong question here. Could you just remind our listeners who may not be old enough to remember, like, what Dr. Mento, who he was and what he was all about, and and what made you decide to submit your very first song to
1: him? Dr. Avento uh, is an icon in, in radio. He was on the air starting in the early 70s. Uh, he He's not on terrestrial radio anymore, but he's still doing a show every week uh, online, com. He started out just playing regular songs on, on um, I think it was KPPC in Los Angeles, And he noticed that whenever he played a novelty song or something that was funny, the phones lit up. And so he he sort of gravitated toward that and he got dubbed Dr. Demento because the music he played was demented. And uh, it it changed into a, a four hour show. Live on KMET every week, and that's where I first heard of him and got obsessed with him. Uh, his show became nationally syndicated, uh, and he was, you know, on the the radio and beloved for for several decades. But he's got an uh, an extensive collection of not only comedy records, but like I think he's got a a master's degree in in, in blues music. He's he's quite you know uh learned in in all things musical He, he knows a lot about everything but but he's famous for being Dr. DeMento and and uh and if it hadn't been for him I would uh I would have a very different life right now
0: I mean the idea to compose kind of funny songs in the way that you do I assume that kind of was sparked by listening to that show
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's where I first heard people like Spike Jones and Stan Freeberg and Tom Lehrer and Alan Sherman. And uh, I I kind of was finding my people, you know, but but all those artists weren't contemporary. I mean, you know, Spike Jones was from the 40s and 50s and early 60s. I mean, these are people that were basically before my time, but I I still thought, you know, all right, well, I'm going to send in my own songs On on the urging of some friends. I recorded some songs on a little 39 cent compact cassette uh, in my bedroom, uh, just me and my accordion. And you know, horrible recordings and terrible songs. But Dr. Demento, again, my parents were smart. He's, uh, Dr. Demento said that he wouldn't have played those songs if I was playing the guitar. But the accordion made me stand out there. Here's here's a teenage kid playing the accordion and thinking he's cool. So I've got to give this kid like a leg up.
2: <laughs> so you get all through school. You get a little notoriety around the Dr. Demento thing. but you But you head off to college were, was life in music something you were still thinking about at that point or?
1: Well, just as a hobby. I mean, I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd have a career in showbiz. I, you know, I don't come from a show business family. Uh, I grew up around Not LA. Nepo baby. No, 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 nupo baby. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it just, I, I just thought, you know, considering that the accordion is my main ax and I do what's considered novelty music, it, Doesn't seem like I would have, like, a 40-year-long recording career. It just – nobody was anticipating that, Um, certainly not me, and nobody wanted to sign me in the early 80s because they thought, oh, you know, this is funny, but, you know, we want to sign artists that are going to have a lengthy career. We want to build an artist's career, and, you know, novelty music is basically the domain of one-hit wonders, so nobody was interested.
0: Mm -hmm. But at college was kind of transformational for you because I I believe that's where you first performed in front of, you know, a live audience of your peers. And you also started writing, you know, songs that became popular when you were still in college, which I think is so incredible. I think there's even a plaque next to the bathroom where you recorded um, (laughs) uh, another one. My Bologna, yeah. Or My Bologna, sorry. Yeah. My Bologna, yeah. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's sort of like where I first dipped my toe into live performance. They, there was like a, they, they called it a coffee house. It was basically a, a little weekly show in the student union at Cal Poly. And it mostly it was like guys getting up with their acoustic guitar and playing Dan Fogelberg covers. And it was just kind of a mellow acoustic night. And I would get up on stage with my accordion. My friend Joe would play the bongos and we play these ridiculous songs and people's jaws would just drop. <laughs> and I loved, I loved getting that reaction. And, and, you know, I thought, well, oh, this is more fun than getting an architecture degree like what am I doing I should be doing this
2: so you had of course My Bologna and then you followed up with another one rides the bus uh-huh. this is all while you're still in college right
1: yeah uh, My Bologna was recorded in the men's bathroom uh, again that's uh, one of the partly true things from the movie yeah, that, that was in fact recorded <laughs> in a public restroom because I couldn't afford a real recording studio and and the the bathroom had a nice warm reverb sound. And another one rides the bus uh, was actually recorded live on the Dr. Demento show, but while I was still in college. And you know, this is before the internet. I didn't have a record deal certainly at this time. It was just something I did for fun. But, so who uh, who's putting out those records, Al? Well, it wasn't a record when it first came out. It was just literally it was just Dr. Demento playing. It was just
2: something Dr. Demento would play. Yeah,
1: he just hit record on his ex- real-time recorder. <laughs> yeah. It was basically an air check of the live performance. We just got together one wow. night and just just played it and he happened to record it thankfully because that record that air check is still to this day the master recording of the song. Oh, wow. Uh yeah. And, and it was weird for me because it was it was uh, right before my last quarter in college. And I went back to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and I'd go to class and I'd come back and my roommate would say, yeah, yeah some New Zealand radio station wants to know how they can get a hold of another one. Why the buzz? Like <laughs> everybody around the world was like trying to track me down to figure out how to get a copy of the song. Wow.
2: Including I guess Scotty Brother Records, right? At the time. Well,
1: that that was a little before Scotty Brothers. Another one Rise of the Bus actually came out on TK Records as a single. Oh
2: sure. From uh, from from Florida. Yeah. yeah. The great dance band. Casey label. and yeah. the Sunshine
1: Band. Casey and, and the Sunshine Band. And uh, yeah. I, I had the uh, the distinction of I think being the last thing they put out before they went bankrupt, which was about a week after the single came out.
2: <laughs> Harry Stone.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh the great Harry Stone. So but then you get a then you get a major label deal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so uh, 1982, I, I signed with Scotty Brothers. Uh, it was a ten album deal, which you know I what? don't I don't think anybody anticipated that I would actually have ten albums. But it was one <laughs> of those dr- draconian kind of things where I was like, I was literally working for a minimum wage in a mailroom, and they and it was like one of those kind of things where like if some by some fluke you happen to be successful, we've got you for ten albums. It was that kind of a deal, and uh, nobody thought that would happen. <laughs> and
2: uh, <laughs> no, but that's that's actually kind of incredible. incredible. Incredible, though, given what you were doing at the time, which was, for lack of a better term, you know, these, you know, a couple of one offs that were sort of, I guess, seen as quote, novelty songs, but that this record company, not only do they want you, they wanted you for a long time and I, I guess maybe saw a little bit of the future?
1: Maybe. I mean, I think they're kind of covering their bases. It's it's one of those kind of things where when the contract Channel's is like, and this contract is available on the planet Jupiter. You know, it's, it's like, <laughs> it's like some all-encompassing kind of thing where like, we've got you. Uh, but, and in fact, that contract after I became, uh, got actually popular, that contract got renegotiated twice because it was a horrible deal deal uh so and each time we got renegotiated they tacked on two more albums so it became a 14 album deal which i finally finally completed uh with my last album in 2014 so after oh 32 gosh. short years i finally fulfilled my <laughs> recording contract
3: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds
0: I'm very curious to to hear from you about your songwriting process because, you know, I've read a little bit about it and it sounds very painstaking and very carefully researched. And I think a lot of people, you know, they hear some of your songs or, or anything that sounds effortless. It got that way because somebody put a lot of effort into making it sound like it's exactly the way it should have been. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because it, it sounds like pretty intense.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more work that goes into it than uh, than you might think. You know, you think, oh, silly, you know, novelty song. But I'll, I'll spend weeks and sometimes months on on songs just to fine tune it and make sure it's as good as it can be. I, I, I collect ideas and themes and jokes. And then just once I have dozens of pages of notes, I, I condense that. Into into song form. It's, it's like a puzzle, especially when you're doing the parodies, because you know exactly how many lines you have, how many syllables per line, what the meter is on each line. So it's, it's a puzzle that I like to do. And, uh, you know, when I did like another one Rides the Bus, I probably wrote that in like 20 minutes because it was just a, as a goof for the Dr. Demento show. I didn't think it was like something I'd be playing on stage to this day. So, but <laughs> I, I, after I realized that people actually cared about what I did and that I'd have to live with these songs for a long time, and then I started putting more and more time into it, and every album I I got got a little bit more obsessive compulsive <laughs> about my songwriting.
2: And how does the how does the process go with the artist? Right, I'm assuming back in those days. Although I, I, I there was a connection between you and the knack, right? I think I read that. But uh, I mean, do you have to say go to Nirvana and say? I've got this idea for one of your songs how does that work?
1: Well, I, the the term I use in every single interview where this question comes up is gray area because legally it is <laughs> uh, with, you know, uh, for the Knack and Queen. That was before I had a record deal. That was that was before I knew anything about the business. I mean, when I when I did a No One Rides a Bus, I just did it. We just did it on, on the right. air. And then we heard from Queen's people saying, you probably should have asked us about this, but it's it's cool. But next time, maybe just ask. And Doug Figer from the Knack was actually somewhat responsible for, for My Bologna winding up on Capitol Records because I went to see the Knack in concert at my college and uh, got backstage and talked to Doug Figer. And he goes, oh, you're the My Bologna guy. And he turns to the guy to his immediate right, who was Rupert Perry Vice President of Capitol Records, who just happened to be there, and I like, said, "Oh, you should put this guy's record out." And Rupert went, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> but 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 nowadays, yeah, it's um, it like I said, it's a great area. I could get away with it. It's it's viewed as fair use in most cases. But I I never want to do you know get away with just what's legal. I, I respect artists and songwriters, and I always want to make sure that they're in on the joke, that they're not offended, and if they don't want me to do a parody, I will walk away.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you you got you know the level of buy-in you needed, like you said, from The Knack, and I believe Michael Jackson was a fan of what you were doing. Were there artists that you really wanted to, you know, do parody songs of that didn't quite work out to your advantage? Like, what about Prince? Did you ever try to do a Prince song? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I was going to say famously the one that got away was, was Prince. Cause I, I had about a, yeah, like a half a dozen different ideas for, for Prince songs over the years. And I, I didn't give up. I, every, every time I had an idea that I liked, we would, you know, my manager would talk to his reps and try to get word to him and, and, he never gave a reason why, but he always said no. He was just a little precious about, you know, he didn't want people making fun of his music or doing parodies or anything like that. I think he had a pretty good sense of humor. He just, mm-hmm. n- but not about his own music so much.
0: Sure. Sure. Sure.
2: And despite the fact you got this great big record deal, which sounds, I mean, you know, I know, I know it was draconian in, in a certain sense, but it was also 10 albums, uh, which, you know, took you a long time to, to get to. Do they let you do your thing? Did they try and shape you as record companies do? I mean, because you do a very singular, individual, very specific thing, um, including writing original music, right, and also including doing polka versions of you know different popular songs as well as and comedy.
1: And so, what were those? What was that relationship like early on? It, uh, at the very beginning, they kind of let me do what I whatever I wanted because they just figured it was like, you know nothing's going to happen with this. It's just like a fluke. It's a one-off. This guy's probably not going to be around next year. Go ahead and do whatever you want. And then after Eat It came out and it was like an international hit, then they started thinking, oh, we should tell Al what to do. <laughs> so so there, there's a brief window of time where they're giving me notes. And I remember for my third album, uh, I had a, a, like a surgeon in the can and I thought, OK, this is going to be the, the next single. And the record company said, yeah, you really need to have a Cyndi Lauper parody on this album. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I don't have any great ideas for it. And they said, well, I don't think we really want to put out this album unless you have a Cyndi Lauper parody on it. So they really twisted my arm. And I, I came up with Girls Just Want to Have Lunch, which isn't my... <laughs> Proudest moment. <laughs> in, in fact, I think I think you can kind of even hear the resentment in my performance, like, girl, just want to have lunch. I'm doing, I'm doing this against my own will. I'm, a- I'm under duress doing this song.
0: That actually makes it funnier, to be honest. <laughs> Please correct me if any of this sounds wrong, but I believe the, the first two videos you did were for Hey Ricky and I Love Rocky Road. That's right. Then you did the video for Eat It, which is a shot for shot remake of Beat It, and pretty ambitious thing to attempt can you talk about the process of doing that did it feel like a bigger deal to you
1: yeah it was big i mean um my, my manager hates when i talk about money but uh, the first video was the budget was three thousand dollars and the second video was nine thousand dollars and eat it we did for forty thousand so dollars it was a huge budget <laughs> <laughs> and, And so I'm backtracking a little bit. I remember when we did our first video for for $3,000, Scotty Brothers' note was like, that was good. Can we have you do 10 more videos for $30,000? And I said, no. no." (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so we did uh, the Eat It video. And uh, I remember, gosh, this is before the internet. I remember having to... I, I think I recorded uh, Eat It uh, or Beat It off of MTV on a VHS tape and then took Polaroids off the TV screen for reference, which we had that's on brutal. set. So, <laughs> so, that
2: is pre-internet.
1: Very yeah. old school. Yeah, but that that's how we did it. And we, we tried to match it as closely as possible. Again, you know, obviously very quick shoot. Right. We got uh, Vince Patterson, who was the original uh, choreographer and gang leader in the Michael Jackson video. So he's, he was in mine. And we got, we didn't get the same exact sets that Michael had because those were uh, torn down or didn't exist in, in, somehow, but we, we recreated it as closely as, he, as we could. And man, that was the best $40,000 I ever spent in my life. That it, that video just changed my life. It's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a great video.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, w- I remember seeing it when I was younger. I I was blown away by it, but ha- it changed because it raised your profile to an even greater degree?
1: Well, it, exponentially, yeah. I mean, before yeah. Eat It, I mean, a few people knew who I was, but I was I was very much a, a, a cult figure. You might have known me from the Dr. Domino show. I, my first two videos didn't get a ton of airplay on MTV, but Eat It, man, I mean... You talk about overnight fame, and it kind of was literal. It was
2: also the height of the Michael Jackson thing, right? The height of the Michael Jackson thing? And everybody was just desperate for anything
1: related to Michael Jackson, and you showed up with the funniest thing ever. Thank you, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was the most you know famous person in the universe, and MTV was just really kind of peaking there in it's golden years and you know the period of time when people would just have mtv on all the time like video wallpaper It was just on and mm-hmm. and if if you had a video in heavy rotation that meant that you were exposed to it you know seven or eight times a day you know that that's one of the reasons we were able to make fun of the 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 beat it video like that because people were intimately familiar with the michael jackson video so we could re- recreate it shot for shot and just tweak a few things here and there and make it funny Uh, so yeah, it was, I mean, literally the day after it went into heavy rotation, people were stopping me on the street. People were staring at me. People were, you know, picking me out of line of the fast food restaurant saying, aren't you the eat it guy? So
2: yeah, it was very, uh, it was a globally shared reference of music and visuals, right? Everybody knew what you were doing, right? They're like, they knew that video.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it was very odd for me because I, I did a promotional tour of Japan and it was odd for me to be literally on the other side of the world. I remember I was in some kind of skyscraper in Tokyo. There was a music box there and uh, it, it was mostly Japanese title, but also Eat It by Will Yankovic. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is crazy. This is crazy.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious.
1: So
2: so that all led to the creation of something you did on and off for many, many, many years
1: with MTV, which was Al TV. Yeah. What what, what do you remember about how that all got started? That was that was fun. I, th- I think that we did the first one as an April Fool's Day prank. It was a four-hour That's show, right. and uh, they had very little budget. Uh, but they basically let me do whatever I wanted. It was you know these these are the early days of MTV, where it's very guerrilla. Very, it, it felt like public access. You know, it had that kind of vibe to it, where like things would go wrong, and like you know the the, the DJs would make mistakes, and the cameras wouldn't turn on at the right. And it it just felt like your local, t- you know, like you're watching a UHF. Channel, but I love that about it. It was just very, you know, very homegrown, and this was a, a, during a time when they, literally they said, "Yeah, you got four hours of programming, have fun," <laughs> and I did.
2: So you said doing, you know, the the old the early days of L TV was like, you know, cable access or UHF, and uh, that's a good segue to your superstardom led to a uh, a feature film called UHF. Now a Considered, I believe, a cult classic. Two, two things: Could you remind our audience who might be too young to remember what UHF television was, and then talk a little bit about the film and how that all came back.
1: Yes, yeah, it's kind of an anachronism, I, I wish I would have come up with a different name for that movie. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. even in the late '80s, it was like kind of going out of style. I, but growing up, I rem- UHF channels were the ones past the first thirteen, that, which are the VHF channels. So two through thirteen were you know like broadcast, and then if you went to the UHF chef dial when it was an actual dial separate dial you could like yeah. you know good and 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 these channels were more independent uh, some kind of public access spanish language a lot, a lot of spanish language yeah, language channels. yeah. it was, and just Weird stuff. Like if you wanted to see like low rent. the weirdest programming on TV, it was going to be on a UHF channel because it was like people broadcasting out of other closets. It was just like really homegrown stuff. And I thought, and that was sort of like the basis of the movie, like this, this low budget indie TV channel that competes with the networks.
2: And it was also like, you know, a bunch of outsiders, right? Like you, you know, that, which was part of, I think, sort of the appeal of what you were doing in general was, you know, you were you're doing your own thing and and having fun with the world from your perspective and not necessarily going down the same road everybody else did.
1: Yeah, that, that, and that's sort of the one of the ironies of my career is as I started out as this outsider kind of making fun and at, at, at all the people, you know, on the inside of the bubble, like the pop music elite you know all these celebrities and it was it was fun to do that but then I started finding myself at the same award shows on the same right. parties <laughs> I think people I'm rubbing elbows with the people I'm making fun of so I was like that was a slightly different dynamic <laughs> that was kind of but kind that's of fun. The,
2: that, that is the life well you're a you know you're a comedian as well as a musician and I think that that goes with the with the territory sometimes yeah right so one more just one more thing on UHF we did a big promotion for it uh, at MTV. Uh, We had something called Camp MTV, uh, which we shot at my beloved summer camp in Elizaville, New York, uh, where I dragged uh, you and uh, your cast, which included Michael Richards, Priest Seinfeld, I believe, Victoria Jackson uh, from uh, SNL uh and yourself i don't remember i don't remember fran was was part of that all i don't think but so Did you remember anything about that uh, particular day yeah, and being I, up at summer camp it,
1: it's a fuzzy memory every every now and then i try to track down videos on youtube i, I remember i think well i think was colin quinn there i think he might have been Col- there colin
2: i mean everybody I mean, it was like ed and dre and colin right. quinn yeah yeah, yeah, and yeah kenny ober and, right.
1: and, and uh randy of the redwoods
2: oh, yeah. and <laughs> we i think we had a rock band perform uh, at, at the end of it and I can't remember who.
1: No, it, it was a blast. I mean, that was a long time ago, and my memories are a little hazy. But uh, I, I had, I had the best time at, at Camp MTV.
2: <laughs> there are, there are, there are small snatches of it on uh, YouTube and uh, on eBay. Every once in a while, you can find a Camp MTV T-shirt. Ooh, up.
1: I still yeah. have mine.
2: Oh. Do you really? My, my wife let me keep it. Yeah, that's uh, that was in the keeper <laughs> pile.
0: Do you still have one, that's, Doug?
2: That's, that's a collector's item. I don't. I oh, wish I do. I would oh like Oh my one. God! But I wouldn't give for one of those. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, you just alluded to this a few minutes ago, Al, that, you know, you you are technically an outsider, but you kind of became an insider. And, you know, over the years, I think your reputation as as a legitimately talented musician has only grown and grown to the point where a lot of, you know, people in the rock world really have great respect for you. And the comedy And world. the comedy world, both. Yeah, absolutely. How does it feel to be sort of on the inside after coming from, it, from the outside?
1: It, it, it's a little odd, you know, it's, you know, when I first started out, it was hard to get Our our phone calls returned, you know, (laughs) my my manager would call up artists uh, and and say, hi, I represent Weird Al Yankovic and they say, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but but after michael michael jackson kind of turned the key after we got michael jackson's permission and blessing that was good ammunition because then we could go back to people and say well you know michael jackson didn't seem to have a problem with it and you know so that 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 helped out a lot but yeah in fact nowadays nowadays uh i've been doing it for so long that it's sort of a, a rite of passage it's it's sort of like um artists know that they've made it they're they're going for their we got which is an ego <laughs> right. plus a weird al parody okay i gotta, gotta get the whole thing
2: <laughs> it's kind of like getting your own comedy central roast or something right <laughs> oh, oh, oh as you got bigger was did there become a point where artists would approach you and say hey have you ever uh thought about doing one of my
1: songs yeah I, i'm not going to mention any <laughs> names but every, every course, now and right? then i'm gonna I don't I,
2: embarrass anybody
1: <laughs> every now and then somebody will you know uh come up to me at a party or whatever and say when are you gonna do one of my songs and um I I, I, I okay, I'll drop one name because it still blows my mind. I this, in 1984, shortly after I you know kind of came into the public consciousness with Edith, I, I was at a at, at a party and uh and I ran into Paul McCartney and I'm you know he's one of my favorite people in the world. I'm a huge Beatles fan, and he said, "Oh, what are you going to do? One of my songs." <laughs> And my head kind of exploded and I, I, I don't know what I said. He probably stammered and passed out, but it was, it was an amazing experience. And how come you
0: haven't, how have you? And I forgot.
1: Well, I, I tried to do a, a parody of live and let die called chicken pot pie, but Paul didn't, didn't <laughs> like that. He didn't love that one. He's vegetarian. So I didn't oh, quite right. stand right. with him. Right.
2: <laughs> and, and how about these days, Al, like choosing songs, you know, you know, Michael Jackson you know and 1984 when all this started you know for you um or all came together for you i mean he was the biggest artist in the world and everybody acknowledged it he crossed over every format he was on every radio station he was all over MTV i mean it's what everybody listened to now cut to 2023 and the music industry's changed dramatically right it's much more fragmented and and much more Segmented. So, h- how do you how do you identify the the songs that you think will connect in this environment?
1: You know, I, I've been kind of taking a break from actual parody songs for a little bit, and partly is just because I wanted to take a break, and partly is because of that which you mentioned is is we don't have that monoculture anymore. Uh, back in the '80s, you know, everybody watched MTV, everybody knew what the the hit songs were, and certainly there are superstars now and there are hit songs now, but. kind of, not in the way that it was a couple decades ago because it used to be right. that, you know, our, our culture wasn't quite so fragmented and everybody was into their, you know, whatever subculture or subgenre they were into. Uh, everybody was sort of like tuned into the same thing. So it made it a little bit easier to to tweak, you know, the, the big pop songs of the day.
0: Right. I also feel like fandoms have become intense in a different way now around really big people. Like, for example, if you tried to do a parody of a Taylor Swift song. I think the Swifties would come for you, <laughs> even if it's in good well, spirit, you know?
1: It, you know, that's, that's always the case. I mean, you know, that, that happened with the Nirvana. Like, there were a lot of Nirvana fans at the time that, that uh, were up in arms. We're
2: way too cool for Weird
1: Al.
0: No one's too cool for Weird Al.
1: I, I The Nirvana I, fans I, thought they were, I think. but then I'd say like Those grunge people. Yeah, I'd say like uh, you know Kurt Cobain signed off on it. He loved it. He he wrote in his journal like Weird Al is a modern rock genius. Like Kurt Kurt was like all in on the parody, and I had to explain that to a, a, quite a few fans that like you know if Kurt's fine with it, you probably should cool off a little bit too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now.
2: You're still out there touring. Uh, I know you got a tour coming up. Uh, you're going to Europe soon, I think, yes. right? Yeah, uh, is what we heard. And you had a great tour uh, end of, end of last year. One of the most amazing things I about you and your career and and this, you know, and your material is it kind of timeless. It always works. You you have this ability to regenerate your audience over and over. Every year there's a new group of young people who discover Weird Al and I think end up probably buying records and now listening on streaming and going to their shows maybe with their, even with their parents who are fans. So the live shows are really like a big part of what you do. I don't think you get enough attention from uh, from people in the media about what a great thing a Weird Al show is. Can you talk about um, your approach to live performance and what that means to
1: you? It- It's, you know, live performance is very special for me. It's my favorite part of what I do. I love getting that kind of uh, positive reinforcement from the fans. And when I started out in the early 80s, uh, it was a much younger crowd. I, I, I think my... My hardest core fans were probably 12-year-old boys, but, <laughs> but those boys grew up, and now, like you said, they're bringing their kids and sometimes their grandkids to the show. It's a multi-generational experience. When I look out into the crowd, it's every age group imaginable, and they're all enjoying the show, maybe on a different level, but they're all having a great time. This tour that I just came off of was the band tour, which meant that we, uh, it was the, kind of the no-frills tour. It was just like us sitting on stools and playing deep cuts from the album. So it was kind of geared more for for the 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 hardcore fans, uh, but the usual show is is a, a multimedia extravaganza. We get the costume changes and the film clips and the props, and it's a real show. You know, it's one of those kind of things that the whole family can enjoy. You know, it's it's something that that never gets old, at least for me.
2: I remember seeing you uh, in New York outdoors at the. Dr. Pepper Festival on the pier with the monkeys. Oh, yes, yes. Right, <laughs> uh, when they were had reformed and had come to some fame also through MTV and it was Bedlam, as
1: I remember. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a while, that was in 1987 and yeah. Yeah, was that like, was a
2: while back. Yeah. That goes all the way back, Al.
1: <laughs> I had one bus and the monkeys had like seven buses. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and it was, it was, that I remember that was a little bit of a blow to my ego at the time because we'd show up in a city and I'd get off the bus and all these girls would run up to me and go, ow, ow, ow. Where's Davy staying? So,
2: wait, were you headlining? Were they headlining? Was it a co-headlining? Oh I can't no, remember. they're
1: they're headlining because I, I I was coming off of a failed album. My my fourth album, Polka Party, didn't do that well, and the Monkees were hot from the uh, the MTV syndicated run. So that you know everybody was There's like,
2: "There's no shame in opening for the Monkees." Al, I think Jimi Hendrix. Wants oh them. no,
1: no, no! Yeah, I'm in I'm in good <laughs> no, company no, no, no. there. Just no, I, <laughs> yeah, I loved I loved opening for the Monkees. I was uh, it was a, yeah. it was a good double bill because I was at a point where I felt like I couldn't really headline. Uh, certainly not in a place that I was playing with the monkeys. Uh, so it, it just felt like a good call at the time. And 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 I love those guys. That was great.
2: I'm going to say it now, Al, and I said it before. Both you and the monkeys deserve to be in the Rock Roll Hall. Why, yours. thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> There's no question in my mind. and uh, I would vote for both of us. We got to go work with those people, Al. There's, it's now run mostly by a lot of ex MTVers. Okay. So Doug has a, influence. A, I've got to remind them how great and important you are. Thank you. And influential. <laughs>
0: So I want to ask you a, a little bit about Weird the the movie that as Doug said earlier we both really really loved. And it was just it was the perfect way to tell your story completely in your sensibility. How when did you first start thinking about doing this project?
1: Well, the movie is based off of a funnier dive video which uh Eric pitched to me in 2010. He'd basically just seen the the, the uh, notorious Biggie Smalls uh, um, biopic, which also kind of played fast and loose with the facts. And, uh, well, you know, all biopics you have to take with a grain of salt because they always dramatize sure. and make some things up. But it struck Eric that, you know, they, they just kind of like really <laughs> didn't hold to the truth that much. So And he thought, who could I do a, 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 a biopic of that's had very little drama in their life and is in fact still alive. And he thought, Oh, weird Al, that'd be great. (laughs) So he, so he, so he pitched me, he said, Hey, what would you think about like doing this funny or die video? And I thought, Oh, that's a great idea. When we we kind of brainstormed and came up with some ideas. So we did the video for funny or die uh, and it went viral. It, It did very well online. And I played it on my live shows. It was one of the things I would do on the big screen while I'm doing costume changes. And this, this was, went on for years. Uh, and people would come to, up to me after the show and say, oh, when is the movie coming out? And i say, no, it's a bit. It's a gag. It's just a fake trailer. But it happened so much. And, you know, in 2009, after Bohemian Rhapsody came out, which, you know, got a lot of critical acclaim, And again a lot of things they kind of like messed with the, the chronology and some facts yeah. and i thought oh man what a-, a lot of
0: things in that movie made me upset yeah
1: yeah <laughs> and, and and biopics were coming back and i thought oh, I, we have to we have to actually do this movie now we have to do the movie but make it go way 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 off the rails <laughs> you know basically do a parody of a biopic
0: there's a whole storyline in in Weird about your marriage to Madonna, and it's very, like, exaggerated. <laughs> and Evan Rachel Wood does such a great job of portraying Madonna. I thought she was excellent. What is your actual relationship with Madonna, if any? Like, what is your... Uh,
1: there there really is none. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, the, the only time I even actually met Madonna was after her show at the uh, Universal Amphitheater in 1985. And uh, I went backstage and I got to uh, meet the Beastie Boys, when they were just boys, Uh, they were opening for Madonna. uh, and And Madonna was getting presented with a gold record, I think, for something or other. And anyways, I just went up to her and I just introduced myself. And I think Like a Surgeon had come out at that point and we we talked for like forty five seconds maybe, and that was that's the extent of our relationship. Uh, although I should point out, and this is, sounds like urban legend, but it's actually true. One of the reasons I actually did like a surgeon is because Madonna was talking to a friend of hers in New York City one day and just wondered aloud, "Yeah, I wonder when Weird Al's going to do like a surgeon." And her friend knew my manager Jay Levy, and word got back to me, and I thought, "Oh, that yeah, sure, not a bad idea." <laughs>
0: So there's a there's a link.
1: She got a writing credit on that one. No, <laughs> in, <laughs> in fact, in fact, she didn't even have a writing credit on a, on a like a virgin. So we didn't have to get her permission when we did like a surgeon. So oh, I, I, I think I think after like a surgeon came out, she made a point of giving herself a writing credit on everything she released <laughs> <laughs> just to so be able to control it.
0: Well, I, I'm curious too. You know, obviously, weird is a very heightened and funny take on your own life, but is it strange at all to to be revisiting even, like, little nuggets of truth again as a grown man? Like, I would think that would be kind of an emotional experience, potentially.
1: It it is. Uh, I mean, like you said, yeah, I mean, we're taking a lot of liberties, but there there are a few nuggets of truth on there. In fact, the very first thing we shot... Was uh, me and my roommates slash band in in a, in our old apartment. You know, we're kind of conflating a lot of things. So I never actually lived with my band, <laughs> but my, the, just seeing Daniel Radcliffe like staring at a package of Bologna and having that epiphany, and it was just it was just an odd thing for me to to watch because it was you know just moments from my life being recreated by an A list actor. It was just pretty incredible for me.
2: <laughs> so. Movies, music, TV, film, videos, live performances. And now you've got a graphic novel coming.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I I don't know if it's officially out. It's it's, I don't think it's officially officially out for another week or so, but it's kind of leaked out to comic book stores. Yeah, it's uh, it's a cool little thing. It's uh, Z2 Comics put out The Illustrated Al, which is basically uh, a couple dozen of my favorite song lyrics, all interpreted graphically by some of my favorite cartoonists and illustrators. Very cool. Were you, a, uh,
2: were you a comic fan growing up? Yeah. I I've mean, heard you talk about Mad Magazine a little
1: bit. Yeah, mostly, mostly Mad. I was uh, absolutely obsessed with Mad. And in fact, there are some uh, Mad artists uh, uh, included on that. I think Sam Viviano, who was Mad's art director for many years, uh, did a nice caricature of Emo Phillips, who wrote the foreword to mm. the book. It, it was really a kick for me to work with some people that had worked on some of my previous music videos, like uh, Bill Plimpton and Aaron Augenblick and a few others. Um, yeah, it, it was just a fun project. It was, it was a nice little thing to have on the shelf. So come at a comic book store soon. I, I think it's in comic book yeah. stores now, but you can order it off of Amazon, like I think next week starting.
0: Yeah, by the time Great. this comes out, it'll be.
2: It'll yeah, it'll, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, for our listeners, by the time you hear this, it will be available. Okay.
0: So I'm sure you've been asked this many, many times, and I know it's a hard question for artists to answer about their own impact, but given the, just as we were talking about earlier, just how long and how enduring your work has been, what do you think is the appeal that makes it you know, have this, uh, you know, resonance with people who grew up watching you and listening to you like I did, and then people who are much younger?
1: It's hard to say. I mean, uh, it's hard to, you know, uh, dissect the frog. But I, I think you know, nowadays, uh, a lot of the appeal is nostalgic because of the people mm-hmm. that grew up with me. Uh, some of the early songs, even though they're they're quite dated, uh, there's a nostalgic appeal for a lot of people. But at the time, and and certainly, uh, currently there, there's also the thing of irreverence, like people, you know, I'm making fun of something. I'm, I'm, t- I'm taking something that other people take seriously and just, you know, kind of letting some air out of the bubble, you know? Uh, so, and I think people react to that and people are always appreciative when, when people get, other people get taken down a peg, especially if it's <laughs> not in an unkind way. I, I try not to, you know, be mean spirited in any of my, my parodies. It's all done in good fun
0: hmm Well, and I, I mean, if, I'm, if I may be so bold as to tell you why you're important. Um, oh, I, please. I,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go I on. Mean, I mean, I think a lot of it, too, is just that, as we've been talking about, what you were doing was so unusual and so idiosyncratic. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't want to be any of those things because you're really trying to conform. But I think so many people respect and, and feel a kinship with somebody who just is themselves and is so having so much fun doing it. And, I, and that's what I always have liked about you and your work.
1: Thank you. You know, that that's sort of the subtext of the movie. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe makes a speech at the end. But it, it's also the subtext of my life. And, uh, you know, there there are times in my life when I thought, oh, gosh, should I have called myself Weird Al? I've been Weird Al my whole life. Like, why? Why, why did I do that to myself? Uh, but then I hear from people that were empowered by that mm-hmm. people that were, you know, outcasts or, you know, freaks or you know weirdos people that didn't fit in in society and they'd look at me and go oh well, here's a guy that was different and was kind of following you know the beat of his own drummer and he came out okay so you know, maybe it's okay for me to let my freak flag fly
2: all right al so our our general final question which will be our next to last question maybe is do you have a favorite all-time basic cable show
1: i'd have to give props to the state and uh, yeah and human giant i love the comedy in that show so a lot of the the sketch comedy stuff that MTV did uh i'd have to put that right at the top of the list
2: well, Weird Al Yankovic, it has been our supreme pleasure to have you here today. Um, you, like I said, this is a a interview we've been looking forward to almost from the day we uh, decided we were going to embark on this uh, series of conversations about the old cable world. So we're glad you made time for well, us today.
1: That's nice to hear, and it's so good to see you. It's been a while, and and you're an old friend, and I, I appreciate uh, everything you've done for me in your life. <laughs> so thank, <laughs> we'll thank you so much. That.
0: It was so great to talk to Weird Al Yankovic. I've never talked to him before. I know, obviously, you know him pretty well, Doug, but... A uh, little,
2: little bit, a little, little bit, a little bit for a long yeah.
0: time. Yeah. And as we talked about, it's just so remarkable that he's still going with his career, still part of the cultural conversation, you know, 40 years or maybe even more than 40 years into into what he's been doing. And I just remember growing up, like, in the era that he was describing, the Dr. Demento era. And even outside of Dr. Demento, there were like novelty songs that would get popular you know on mainstream radio it was like a a a whole genre and aside from Weird Al I don't think that really exists anymore I mean the only equivalent I can come up with is when somebody does like a funny parody on like YouTube or TikTok that maybe blows up for a couple days but that's not really the same thing
2: no and he and he really transcended the whole thing somehow yeah you know, just, other than just being a, a a novelty, that's why I was pressing him. I'm like, what was the record company thinking and saying to you, and how did they see you? I have to imagine they saw him as this guy who might have three or four or five of those things, and then thanks very much. Right, but he transcended the whole thing, and and you know, like he's a good director. He's a really good writer. He's really funny. He can act a little bit. He's a great performer. I mean, he's you know he's he's you know he's he's he's, he's, he's very singular. Um, he's very distinct. Uh, he's very specific, um, but he's very funny, and and he's still here.
0: And I also think the, the sense of humor that he has and that so much of his work has is not the kind of, like, very wry, know-it-all sort of satire that we see and that I, you know, like very much. But there's a certain just – let's just be silly and just right. be joyful about being silly. I mean, that's how I felt when I was watching Weird. It just was – it was just so much fun. And like he said, it's not – none of it's mean-spirited, really. It's just – Silly in the best possible way,
2: no. But but it's not soft either. No. It's very clever, right. Right? right? And and it and it and it and it kind of works, and it and it holds up too. I mean, you know the, like you know I've been revisiting the songs before uh, doing this interview today, and he said you know they're out quote outdated. I don't think so. I think hmm. they hold up great. I love hearing them. I feel the same way hearing them as as I do. Uh, hearing other songs from that era, they bring me back. Right, right. It was the it was a song of its time.
0: I mean, if, if for some reason they feel outdated, it's only because the songs are kind of old. Like their their source material right. is right. old, but like what right. he's doing with it doesn't feel outdated to me at all.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think really underrated, you know, sort of um, artist in a, in a lot of different ways. And yeah, he probably should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he should probably have a you know get uh, some more accolades than maybe he has received. And he's and he's done it all his way so you know good for him i don't think he's uh, i don't think he ever stopped being weird al. you know the weird owl sort of brand um certainly has evolved but i think it's also you know very true to the core that was there in the early 80s. for
0: sure so i mean i think we have an assignment now that my beloved duran duran is in the rock and roll hall of fame it is our job now to get weird al in the walk of walk and roll hall of fame
2: i was kind of surprised you didn't ask has he ever done a, a duran duran parody
0: not that i can think of no
2: I was a little surprised you didn't ask him that, Jen. I have to
0: say. Oh, really? Oh, I'm sorry. Can I get him back on the line?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe we'll dial him back up. Hungry like the... I mean, Hungry's right there. That's a
0: food parody. He's got to be able to do something with that. Hmm.
2: There's got to be something there. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed uh, our time with Weird Al, and we look forward to having you next time on Basic.
0: Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with SiriusXM.
2: Hosted by Jen Chaney
0: and Doug Herzog.
2: Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli.
0: Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer.
2: Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson.
0: Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher.
2: Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner.
0: You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us.
2: Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.